In this new podcast episode, John Miles, a former U.S. naval officer, accomplished multi-industry CEO, and the host of the highly acclaimed Passion Struck podcast, provides insight into his upcoming book, Passion Struck, and the transformative movement he has initiated to reshape human behavior. Beyond the pages, Passion Struck serves as a personalized roadmap, a guiding framework designed for intentional living, one that invites you to serve a purpose greater than yourself. Drawing from a seven-year study of 700 bangers, influential interviews, and personal experiences, John unveils a powerful framework encompassing mindset shifts, behavior changes, and actionable steps tailored to your personal growth. Through our conversation, John addresses compelling questions such as, what does passion truly mean? And why is it increasingly crucial in our world today? How do the seemingly insignificant choices you make daily shape the course of your life? What strategies can be employed to ignite intrinsic motivation and sustain it over time? How does one craft a life that is both fulfilling and intentional? Why is it so important to define and live by your core values in your unique personal development? We also talk about the significance of reflecting on feelings of disappointment in the decision-making process. John also unravels the six steps of the deliberate action process and his role in guiding your positive life changes. Our conversation dwells into the importance of constant reinvention in one's life, unraveling the associated processes. For leaders and managers especially, also don't miss John's thought-provoking concepts such as the mission angler, the mosquito-hearted, that's a great one, the fear-confronter, and the visionary arsonist. Passion Struck is an invitation, an inspiration for you to sidestep the quiet desperation that might be lingering. It beckons you to craft a life uniquely aligned with your passions, values, and aspirations. This transformative guide is your trusted companion on the journey toward intentional living and personal transformation. Ready for this amazing episode? Have you ever wondered what makes people capable of creating changes that impact their lives and the world around them? What is their way of thinking, their mentality, their patterns, their perceptions of the world, their reactions to different life events? What influences them? My name is Cristina Puyol, and I invite you to join me in this adventure where we will explore together the mind of change makers. Today in this episode, I have with me a former U.S. naval officer, multi-industry CEO, systems entrepreneurs, top podcast host of the podcast, Passion Struck Podcast, ranked in the top 0.1% globally, and author of the book that is releasing the first week of February, Passion Struck. He has started a huge movement of Passion Struck to change human behavior by teaching the skills to live intentionally in service of something bigger than oneself. He has been in, me, in my podcast before, so check out the episode 52. You're going to learn more about him. And now that his book is about to release, we brought him back to tell us all about it. So help me in welcoming this passion struck leader. Hi, John. How are you? John Miles is an amazing person, and I'm so happy that you're back here. 
Christina, I am so excited to be here and you have one of my favorite podcasts. So it's always such an honor to get to come back on it. Thank you so much. And I had the honor to read uh, the book and also uh, connecting with you last time. I think we have so many things in common. So I want to ask things and learn more about the book. And I, I know people have to wait to read it, but maybe we can give some glimpse about the things that you share and uh, your method of getting uh, passion struck. I know I asked you this last time, but since some people may skip listening, which I don't suggest that you do, go to episode 52. What is a passion for you? To me, passion is that burning desire inside that leads us to want to have self-actualization. It wants us to fulfill things that we only dream of, but we want to make reality. It's one of the most important things I think people need to have, especially in the world we live in right now to carry us forward into the next generations. I heard some people, because I, I totally agree with your definition, but then I hear some people say, well, you don't need passion because you can fall like in love or you can get passionate about something when you try it enough times or when you spend enough times with it. What do you think about that sentence? I mean, you hear about people who perhaps have been in a, an arranged marriage and over time they learn to love each other. Um, I think you can learn to love something because you you're doing it so many times or you spend so much time with someone. But to me, there's a little bit difference between that and the passion that I'm talking about, which is really that inner flame that lights you up, that exploitation of your uniqueness, solving a problem that only you inherently were born to solve. And I think when we find that uniqueness, when we find that passion, um, we want to do everything we can to pursue it because that's what lights us up. That's what gets us out of bed. That's what makes us feel like we matter. And when that is extinguished, I think it causes people to feel a lot of angst. Um, they have to do a lot of soul searching because they feel lost. And can it happen that you start like solving one pro one specific problem and then you have passion about that? And then once it's solved, you have to look for another thing to be passionate about. Is that how it would happen? Yeah, I think Bill Gates is a great example of this. He had a tremendous amount of passion to create the Windows operating system and what became Microsoft, but his passion shifted like I think a lot of ours do, and it's now on philanthropic ventures. One of the core concepts I talk about uh, frequently is the importance of constant reinvention. And to me, your passion is going to evolve. And so it's constantly reinventing yourself as that aligns, as you grow as a human. I love that part, actually, because I, I saw that and I totally feel aligned with that because, as you know, I've also had to reinvent myself a couple of times. And I think one of the things I share a lot is that, and, and you mentioned that in the book too, is that change might be harder when things are going well. And you put an example of someone, an example, a life example of someone that was on the peak of their career and then they have to choose or they chose to change. And I think change, it is harder when you're not pushed into change. And that is what you talk about reinventing oneself. Now, going into that, 
that now that we got into the re reinvention, how much is it that if you are tied your identity, the identity to what you are doing, and the fact that then reinventing will be harder because your identity is too tied to your things and to how can you change that easier so that reinventing is easier? Well, I think it's like anything, the more you get in the habit of of putting yourself out there and doing it, the easier it's going to get. And I think it's it's a skill that can definitely be built. It's something that needs to be built. And I think it starts with constant learning at its core, because the more we learn about other things that are in the universe, um, other things that pique our interest, the more we're going to grow as a human being and the more we're going to try these things out in our life, just even unconsciously doing some of these things will expand us. So to me, it, it's something that I think at first can be very difficult, but if you look at it as more of a subtle change, as opposed to having to do a huge life change, it becomes easier. And the more you can do these subtle changes a long time, instead of waiting for a major event to happen that makes you do a huge change, the easier it becomes. Makes sense. So basically the power of reinvention has um, making small shifts and practicing often. Yeah, I think it's, it's making, I mean, that's one of the main things I talk about in the book is the power of what I call micro choices. There, every single day we make 60,000 to 90,000 choices thought we have thoughts and each one of those thoughts becomes a decision that we make. And I believe it's those micro choices that either propel us to a valley of despair or to the tsunami of greatness in our life, because we end up perpetuating a continuous cycle that either is leading us to growth or the status quo. And I think the biggest thing that reinvention brings is a constant drive to want to expand our boundaries and to be more than what we are. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. And, and that's, it's for whatever reason, these are themes that are coming to me recently about the small changes, which I love that you talked on the book, um, because I think sometimes we're not aware of them and you start walking a path with small changes and eight years along the way, then you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I was not supposed to be here. So what are things that can help us to pay attention to those small decisions that may not be the ones that are going to help us? I think the most important thing you've got to learn to do is to do something that I call aligning action with intention with aspiration. And I think what a lot of people end up doing is they think that they're independent variables when they are interdependent and they rely on each other. You can try to measure your action, but if it's not aligned intentionally with your core values, if it's not aligned with where your future aspirations lie, then to me, you're making choices or actions that are easy. They're, they're in the moment, they're almost unconscious. But to me, if you're really doing it with that alignment, you're doing things that are harder. You're making these mindful choices that end up 
really galvanizing you and expanding your presence and expanding your breath. And then that fulfills your aspirations over time. But if you don't get at that alignment, correct of action, intention, and aspiration, you get out of discourse and things start unraveling. Yeah. So I guess that's why you mentioned that you first start the mindset shift, which is you have to look at what your beliefs are, what your values are so that you know, or what you aspire to be so that you align everything else towards that mindset. Because I was going to ask you, could you start in another place to change yourself instead of the mind? Um, but I guess if you if you first said all these things about values, beliefs, then you kind of set the target of you know where you want to go and align everything towards that, right? Yeah, the the way I organize the book is the first section is on mindset shifts, the second section is on behavior shifts, and the third section kind of brings it all together with the psychology of progress, which is how you use deliberate action and intrinsic motivation to fuel you, but. The, if you can think of it this way, your mindset shifts are the why you're, you're doing something and they influence the how. The behavior shift is really the what, which then creates the how. And this deliberate action then is the where and the when that you end up taking those actions to fulfill a mindset shift or a behavior shift. And when you talk about... Like, I know you have this diagram, which is really cool. I don't know how much I can tell, but I, I'll I'll ask anything and you tell me if not. But I say like you've made like an ikigai of passion. And I love that where you have the three circles and you kind of tell what is each of them. Tell us a little bit about this triad and, uh, and why have you put these three things together? Yeah, what you're talking about is the passion struck model. And I actually wrote the book and as I was reading at this framework kind of came into my mind. And if you think about this as Mickey Mouse ears, um, these two circles that form the ears are really mindset and behavior. And then underneath it is the concentric circle of action. But to me, where you have that alignment of mindset, behavior, and action all coming together, like I said, with action, an alignment with intention, alignment with aspiration, it creates passion struck. And so there are a few things in this model that uh, I thought were extremely important. One is your passion, as we talked about at the beginning, really drives your mindset. There's another aspect of what I think the underlying triangle that is the foundation of this sits upon, and that's perseverance. And to me, your perseverance is really aligned with your behaviors because your behaviors. And as you're starting to make those changes, you need to persevere to get through them. And then to me, your action is absolutely in alignment with intention. So passion, perseverance, and intention underpin mindset, behavior, and action. And then the other thing I I put into the model were the four stoic virtues of wisdom, values, self-mastery, and courage, because in the end, it takes courage to drive action. It takes wisdom to drive your mindset shifts. It takes your core values to drive your behavior. And ultimately, where all this is leading to is self-mastery driven by intrinsic motivation. So that's kind of how, in a a big picture way, to think what the book is trying to uh, bring to life. 
And uh, talking about motivation that you mentioned, what is intrinsic motivation? So I think it's important for people to understand the difference between extrinsic and um, intrinsic. So when we think of extrinsic motivation or extrinsic validation, they're typically the things that align with success or material objects or titles or um, external reward systems that, uh, that we're drawn to that are motivating us to take our actions. Whereas intrinsic motivation or validation is completely the opposite. It's those things that internally are driving your, your resolve or drive. So it's things like um, that inner passion that you feel to do something. It's the relationships that bring you joy in your life. Um, it's the satisfaction that you get from helping someone. Um, it's the satisfaction that you get from being kind to someone. It's the feeling of awe. I think that we all have felt in our lives, but we want more of. So that's um, a, a key difference, I think, in how you can see extra extrinsic validation um, being achievement status, material possessions versus intrinsic motivation originates from oneself. But then usually when we talk about motivation, you know, people uh, uh, kind of associate that with having the the drive to do something, right? So usually if you have a big why, then you have more drive. But sometimes you lose the motivation along the way. And how do you find that intrinsic motivation again? Or what can help you keep that motivation so you don't have to, you know, kind of, you know, force yourself constantly to do something? So I know the why is a big thing. But what else can help you to keep that motivation? Yeah, uh, Christina, I think one is self-acceptance. And a great example of this would be, um, let's just take a dancer like yourself. You feel a deep sense of accomplishment and joy in creating your art, regardless of whether it wins awards or gains public recognition. You do it because you love it. You love to dance. You love to express yourself. And when you do so, it this personal growth that you experience, this creative process, it ends up bringing you fulfillment. And it's internal fulfillment. The same thing, I think, ends up happening with self-compassion. Um, so after making a mistake at work, instead of berating ourselves or relying on others to assure us, we can practice that self-compassion where we acknowledge the mistake, learn from it, and recognize that our errors are part of growth and the human experience rather than rather than treating ourselves in a way that uh, we just come down on ourselves so much. So those are two ways that I would recommend that if you find yourself in situations, you can change it. Yeah, and I think the second one is important because that will drive you down on the path of uh, self-infligement of, you know, I didn't do this or I didn't. And then it's harder to get up and go back and do the thing that you want to do. Well, and I, th and I think another one is to define success on your own terms. And I mean, we've touched on this, but it really means setting goals that align with your values and what brings you intrinsic satisfaction rather than those that are aimed at getting recognition or the feeling 
of approval from others. And when you free yourself from that, it enables you to have so much more growth and confidence in being able to pursue those things that are most meaningful to you. I find with the people that I work with, um, one, the, the big thing is this thing about reinventing themselves. Like once they reach one, you know, success, whatever they define success in their careers is switching to something else, which we kind of touch a little bit. And then people that don't even know what values are, like they do have values, but they never spend time. They do it like at work. So they set like a mission for the whatever, you know, business they're in, but not for themselves, you know? And so how for these people that have no not, not no clue, but they don't pay attention to their personal values so much. What, what can help them to be more conscious, have more intention, which is a word that you use a lot. And then I think is so important. Yeah, it's interesting. When I started Passion Struck, one of the first things that I developed, because I wanted the community to align to a certain set of values, is I created the, the Passion Struck core belief system. And it's amazing to me how often that page is hit and how many people write to me and say, we, we love that you've laid out this criteria. And to me, it's something that I guess I started to look at uh, when I was a midshipman at the Naval Academy was we were always taught these values of what it meant to be a midshipman or to serve our country. And I guess some of those attributes just became a living and breathing part of me, meaning you need to have things like integrity. You need when you're faced with situations to do the right thing. You're, you're meant to show humility over ego. I mean, whatever it is that you want to create, I think it's part of uh, introspection and really setting a baseline for what to you are the things that you're not going to settle for in your life? What are the things that when life happens, these are going to be constant reminders to you that in those moments, this is how I want to act. This is how I want to show myself and show up in the world. And I think one of the things that, that can help people is to write them down, to journal about them. Um, but I think if you want to make this something that becomes a recurring theme in your life, it's to think about them um, and make them habitual so that when you're faced with these decisions, it becomes an automatic response that this is how you're going to react in those situations. And, you know, one of the chapters that I talk about this about a lot in the book is on something that I call the boundary magnifier, because um, as you're growing as a human, sometimes being right is going to mean that you find yourself alone. You're going to be in situations that are unpopular because of what your personal beliefs are that may be different from friends or family members or peers. And I think a great example of that that I bring up in the book is Steve Jobs, who really had these values that were driving him that he thought uh we're going to create th this company that that had been such a passionate component of himself. But he believed in his value so much that uh, eventually he was taken out of his own company 
but he stood by his values and kept perpetuating them. And it ended up resulting in him coming back in. And then we all see what ended up happening with Apple. But, you know, if you think about that, sometimes these decisions will leave you in positions where you are alone. You, you are because you're pushing your boundaries, you're setting these deliberate guide guideposts for how you want to live your life, that it's, it's going to cause you to have to make tough choices. And, but I think once you do, and once you assert those boundaries, they become a consistent attractor of the things that you want in your life, whether that's the environment you want, the people you want, the influences you want, um, uh, and they're going to continue to drive you in that direction that you're trying to expand. This, this I think, is very important to to pay attention to because what you said, doing the right thing is not the popular thing many times, and and to remember your values because when things, when like you're saying, when life hits you, is when your values are tested because that's when you have to say, okay, now if this is my value, I have to stand by my value, and and sometimes we. I think as human beings, we are afraid of being outside of the group. And if your values put you outside of the group, it it's, uh, it can be hard. And once you started, like, so I, of the things that you share, having first the description of the values, which they are, or which ones do you want to live for is the first thing. Then having them written, like you're saying, having them somewhere where you can remember but what other things can you do? So if you reach a point where there's a tough decision and you haven't built like the momentum of that path, what can help you make a tough decision and stick to your values instead of tripping over your values? Well, I think one key thing is, is when you make the mistake, um, how does it make you feel? Meaning I think we've all had situations where we take the easier path in that moment, it could be because could be because we're feeling peer pressure. It could be because um, maybe to take that physical action, it's going to to take so much more out of us that we ended up taking an easier one than than that one we would have taken. So, I mean, it could be you you set a goal that you want to climb a mountain and you only make it halfway up because you lose the resolve in climbing it. Um, and so your core value could be you want to show um, perseverance in how you lead your life. I think what you got to do is you have to reflect on those situations and how did it make you feel? Are you disappointed in yourself and in your actions? And if so, do you want to keep having that being the feeling or do you want to have the feeling of one of authenticity that you are living up to the standards that you set for yourself? and so to me, that that's what's always helped reinforce them for me is when I don't do the behavior that I want, it's the repercussions that come with it that I learn from. And I realize that that's not uh, what I'm proud of. That's not what I stand for. And then when those situations come again, it then becomes a memory trickler in your mind of how you do, you do want to show up. And so you're not perpetuating the same thing over and over again. And there's another part of the of the book that you have, uh, which I love, where you talk about the mosquitoes. <laughs> Can you yeah. tell us about? I think that part is important. Also, yeah, everything the, is important, but yeah. So let me uh, lay lay the, 
the backdrop here. So we talked about the framework of mindset shifts and behavior shifts. And I think it's important for people to understand that these just didn't come out of the mag magical era. It, I ended up having a real passion for studying what makes people as Robin Sharma say, become the top 5%. You know, why do some people learn how to 10 X their lives? And what is the secret to it? So I started to do this research that culminated over seven years to be examining what I call 700 vanguards that are everything from CEOs to musical performers, actors and actresses, to astronauts, military veterans, to New York Times bestselling authors. Like what causes these people to break out? And I kept seeing these patterns emerge and I ended up starting with around 30 of them and it came down to 12 core principles that I saw people who had up-leveled their life implement in their lives. And as I really went into the psychology and the behavior science behind it, it turns out that six of them were really shifts of mindset and six of them were these behavior shifts. But where I start this out is something that I call a mission angler. So the first step that I talk about in the book is you've got to be a life crafter. You have to angle for the life that you want, followed by the next principle, um, which gets into um, the constant reinvention, being a brand reinventor that I talked about. But then once you start, once you've figured out where you want to craft your life and you start on this process of reinvention, the first thing that you're going to run into is resistance from your environment, those people who surround you. So as I was thinking about this, I happened to be on a walk and I turned on a radio program and the announcer said, what to the audience do you think is the most dangerous animal on the planet? And the responses started to come in and they were the same responses that I was thinking of shark or a spider or a snake or a jellyfish like they have in Australia, wherever it might be. And it turns out we were all wrong. It turns out that far and away, the mosquito is the most dangerous animal on the planet. It kills almost 2 million people per year. But it got me thinking of Jonah Berger's work on invisible influence. And similar to mosquitoes who are trying to drain our blood, there are human mosquitoes who are also trying to extract blood from us. And they are these invisible influences that we don't even think about that are permeating our life. And so I then went to define some common ones that I have seen in my life to make this into a fun exercise for someone who reads the book. And the first one I call the blood sucker. And this is someone who's really a boundary destroyer. Uh, these people draw blood often by ignoring professional, professional or personal boundaries they might make intrusive demands of your time, question your decisions, offer unsolicited advice, but ultimately it leaves you feeling undermined and disrespected. And I think we can relate to the bloodsuckers in our lives. The second category is something that I call the invisible suffocator. And these are known for their negative outlook. These pessimists are the ones who engage in constant complaining, which we've all seen dampen the mood, affect morale in a team, they're the ones who at a family gathering, maybe you're sitting next to your aunt or uncle, and you mentioned to them that you've got this great opportunity and all they can do is talk about the negative aspects and how it's going to 
cause all these painful changes in your life and why you shouldn't pursue it. And then the last one are the pitas, uh, which some people call them pieces of work. I refer to yeah. them as pains in the ass. And they're <laughs> the people in your life who thrive on drama and conflict. They instigate disputes, they gossip, they create tension, discomfort, and ultimately undermine so many things that you want to create. And so I, they're more than those three types, but I thought those are three great starting points for you to get this idea. And then what, what I ended up uh, suggesting is that you treat this as if you were shooting a bow and arrow against a target. An easy way to start implementing this is to just think about that target and do a simple ex exercise where think about the 15 people who are most closest to you in your life. In the first circle, put the five who are most close to you, the next five, the next five, and then go through each of those individuals and do any of them exhibit any of the behaviors of the three mosquitoes that I brought up. If so, they are absolutely impacting who you are and the person you want to become, which is a great starting point because once you can recognize them, you now have the power to do something about it. Yeah. And it caught my attention because I, I'm working on, on uh, self-esteem with a group of people. And it made me think that your self-esteem is also so affected by mosquitoes around you. And, and so I thought that was a very good point. If you allow mosquitoes, we call it vampires to, to be drawing your blood, <laughs> It's going to be harder to bring up your confidence, your courage, your your uh, self-esteem, uh, because that's going to be affecting you. And especially if it's close people to you that are there by you all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think an energy vampire is a great example or metaphor for this as well. I, I like the, the mis I use the mosquito because I think sometimes these things, these people tend to appear almost like they're invisible because mm -hmm. oftentimes they've been in our life for so long that we've just been accustomed to them being there. And that, and those voices have been influencing us for a very long time. And we don't even realize the long-term implications. So I guess then these people that you were studying pay great attention to not having mosquitoes around them so that they can thrive. Yeah. I mean, one of the people I talk about is Thaddeus Bullard, um, who, if anyone who's listening might be a, a WWE fan. He's a pretty famous wrestler, but Thaddeus, uh, his, his mom, I don't even think was 12 or 13 years old when he was born. And he was, he was immersed in just negativity throughout his young life. And he kept getting arrested, kept getting, uh, I mean, the, the police even came a couple of times in school to, to take him uh, away. And he just found himself leading this life where most people were projecting that by the time he was 16, he was going to be dead because of the influences that had become part of his life. And he had this lucky event happen where he was kind of forced to go to this um, summer camp that was run by the police department. And through that, he started to learn a completely different view of life. And he started getting positive influences in his life and it changed his whole trajectory. And once he learned what those boundaries were, it's something that he's pro pro protected or projected 
now throughout the rest of his life. So even when he had situations such as he was a, an All-American football player at University of Florida, um, even when he didn't make it to the NFL, when his time in the Arena League didn't m- amount to what he wanted, instead of leaning into the negative influences, he listened to the ones who said, you can pivot and do something different with your life, which led him um, from that point to, to wrestling. And now um, he's one of the most philanthropic people that I know. But that's just a, a small example of someone who's implemented in this in their life. I think a bigger example that people would know would be Oprah. And I mean, you look at the beginning of her life and the physical abuse and everything else that infiltrated her life. And then um, the, the constant um, setbacks that she had at the early part of her career until she did her own mosquito audit and took out those influences and figured out uh, the path that she wanted to go on. And then you see what it amounts to today. Yeah, I love that the mosquito audit. <laughs> and yeah, I think I think the good analogy is that sometimes it's you don't see it. Like it's in front of your face and you don't see it. Um and that's kind of like a mosquito, and especially the mosquito now that you cannot even hear them, you know. And so yeah, and and you have to be it's kind of like you have to schedule time to sit down and say, okay, let me just have an assessment of where I am. Uh, you know, what are the mosquitoes in my life and what do I need to be careful and practicing, um, you know, looking for the things that are good for you and the sentences. If you don't have anybody around reading, you know, listening, writing to you and finding this as a practice, not as a one-time thing. Yeah, Absolutely. In another point, you talk about the fear confronter. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is that? After you have these influences in in your life and you start to make changes and you start doing the mosquito audit, the next thing that you've got to realize is that the biggest competitor you're ever going to run into is yourself. And this starts and ends with self-doubt, imposter syndrome, um, self-sabotage, all the things that we do to ourselves. And one of the things um, I didn't write about in the book, but one of the concepts that I love to talk about is that we end up becoming visionary arsonists. We become someone who, with the best of our intentions for personal growth and achievement, we inadvertently arson the very dreams and aspirations that we're trying to create. We end up dreaming big, but then we engage in behaviors that are counterproductive to these goals. And I think one of the clearest ways you could look at this is you set a goal to run a marathon, but yet as you go down this path of achieving it, you start changing your diet. You start changing your routine, how much you're, you're actually dedicating yourself to going out and doing the daily practice that it's going to take to get there. Um, you end up changing your mindset on, and you then start saying, well, I could do a half marathon instead of a full marathon, or I could run a 10 K instead of it. And you, you start making these decisions. And before you know it, uh, the dream, the dream that you've set out or the task is no longer one. And so to me, signs that we are, creating this visionary arsonist 
aspect in our lives are things such as perfectionism, setting unrealistic goals, procrastination, negative self-talk, avoidant behaviors. It's when your actions consistently contradict your personal aspirations. Again, going back to you got to align action with intention with aspiration. And what ends up happening is it leads to frustration and a sense of being stuck, which I think so many of us have felt. And when you talk about intention, what is the difference? So sometimes I hear intention as being conscious about what you're doing. And uh, other times it's like you said an intention, for example, in your actions. What is the difference in your definition of intention and consciousness? I mean, I think they're ultimately aligned. Um, to me, intentionality is definitely linked to, I believe, your your actions that you end up taking. And to me, when you're intentional about something, you're thinking, you're being conscious in that moment about thinking about the action that you're taking and and basically the why behind it. Like, why am I doing this? And Typically, that aligns, if you're doing it um, in a positive way, to who you want to become, to this ideal self that you're aspiring to be. And to me, that's where intention comes into play is it's you're making these choices intentionally to become a better person, to become a more self-realized person. Um, to become the best person you possibly can become. Yeah, because I was trying to understand the the, the difference uh, because I feel sometimes people have an intention. So they set an intention, but they're not conscious of what's behind the intention. And so I was trying to understand where you came from with the intention word, because um, at least I have clients that they say, no, no, my intention is this. Yeah, but no, you're not being conscious really about your intention. <laughs> And so they, in their mind, this is the intention, but from outside, you can see like the action doesn't speak that way. No, I mean, I, I have a whole chapter I wrote about that, that um, it, it's kind of this whole philosophy that I learned many years ago that people speak with their feet. And so often words come <laughs> yeah. out of our, our mouth, but our actions that we show are completely different. And that's exactly what that is. To me, intention is really the fact that you recognize that your life is going on a path that you don't want it to go on and you intentionally alter that course versus unintentionally or unconsciously just perpetuating the course that you're on. And I think to be honest, that's what the majority of us end up doing is we have this inner voice inside of us who's telling us that everything is great, that the way we're leading our lives is is comfortable and, and keep doing it. Um, but if you start looking at where your aspirations are going to your point, if you had set an intention that this is what you want to become and you're not doing it, that's where your intentionality kicks in and you consciously start making decisions that are more in alignment with where you want to go. You've been coaching, working with people, interviewing amazing people. 
of all the things that you see, and I know this is not a, not a single answer, but of all the things that keep people stuck, what is one of the major things that keep people stuck and not wanting to change even when things are good, but it's not what they want? I think one of the things that uh, keeps us stuck is our perspective. Meaning uh, oftentimes we see things in a very linear black and white way. It's It becomes either an I or it's an either or and how we're viewing things rather than a both and. And I think that is something that it seems easy to do on the outside to become a perspective harnesser, but the Western mindset, which is deeply rooted in Greek philosophy, excels in linear thinking. So we tend to be trained to see the world as either or. So when you start embracing things as a both and, which is more tied to ancient Eastern philosophies like Buddhism or Taoism, they acknowledge the paradoxical nature of existence. And I think this is something that people can adopt. It's, it's thinking about balancing things like hard work with rest, merging self-discipline with self-compassion, finding the harmony between solitude and community integrating mind and body, accepting oneself as sufficient yet capable of growth. And I don't think we do that cognitive restructuring enough and we end up seeing things in a very limited way instead of expanding our views on things um, in, in, different, in different ways. And it affects many different things in our life. So the, the hedonism paradox is all about being on that hedonic treadmill where we're seeking pleasure. And that often over time leads to less enjoyment because chasing too much pleasure can make regular life seem dull. You know, there's the paradox of intolerance. Absolute tolerance can destroy tolerance. A society that tolerates everything, including intolerance can become intolerant. So it really requires that we put limits to preserve diversity and freedom things like that. So it's finding harmony and balance in everything. And I love that. Yeah. And the end, having the end uh, and not the or. And uh, there's a part where you also talk about the cycle of progress. And there you mentioned about analyzing and reviewing constantly. And I think that's I think that's some something that we forget to do and that will bring us more harmony if we spend more time analyzing where you are. And you mentioned about analyze and prioritize, I think is the second. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about that, Lou? Because I think we don't spend time usually, like we're running, running, running and not spending time to stop and figure out where we are. Yeah, so in this uh, third section of the book, um, I go into really defining what the psychology of progress is, but then I go into how do you start implementing in your life? And something that I've used that I share in the book is something called the deliberate action process. And if you pre-order the book, I actually have created a 70 page ebook that outlines uh, with great examples and worksheets, how you can implement it in your life, but it has six simple steps. And you can implement the deliberate action process in a single day. I've typically used it, if you think of an agile methodology in a, in a week-long sprint to accomplish something I'm trying to accomplish, uh, 
but it starts with an analysis phase. So you're analyzing at that given point, uh, what is going on in your life? What is this aspiration you want to do? And then what are the next steps that you want to take to get closer to it? And that leads to prioritization, which is the next step. So you prioritize what are the two or three most meaningful things that you want to accomplish in the very near term. Then one of the most critical aspects of this is then you need to ignite, meaning you need to create this motivation to want to accomplish it. And I think that motivation, if it's fleeting, has a huge ramification on the next phase, which is executing. Because if we're not motivated to do it, we're going to keep procrastinating and become that visionary arsonist. Um, but after you've executed it, the, as you were mentioning, the two steps that often people don't do enough is to measure the progress that they've made, even in that week from their past self or their actual self that they were to this future self that they're becoming, and then use that again as motivations to renew the next cycle of action that you're going to take. And maybe you didn't uh, accomplish everything you wanted to, and that's fine. But you take that action then into, again, your analysis and your prioritization. And if you start doing this on a continual basis, it, it will change your life. I mean, I've used this in my personal life and I've used it in my professional life. And it, uh, I, I cannot tell you how much it has worked just by getting in, into that si simple processed routine of driving changes that you want with an actual process um, that's that sounds easy to do, but is much harder to implement on a recurring basis. Yeah. And I think that part of measuring is important because I find that at least with some of my clients, they set a goal and once they reach it, they forget they set that goal. So then they think of the next thing or something else they would have loved to achieve around that goal. And then they feel they didn't accomplish it. But if I did, you know, if they really write down, this is the goal and this is how I will know that I reached the goal, then you will know and everything else is a plus or a minus, but you reach whatever you set down. And so measuring is so important and going back and reviewing what was that you wrote as a goal and how would you measure it? So you don't feel like you haven't accomplished, especially for like perfectionists or, you know, people that are constantly trying to reach the next one and the next one. So I think that cycle is so important. I I had one question about that cycle and it's how do you ignite yourself? And it goes back to something that you said before, but I wanted to ask you again. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to your intrinsic motivation. So it's like, what is driving, what is driving you to make the changes that you want to create? And in a work environment, what, what is creating that drive to make the situation better for the team you might be leading. Like, what do you want to create? And the same thing happens in our individual lives. So like by taking this action, I can up-level this aspect of me, or by taking this, um, I'm going to see this growth emerge. Or, you know, I think a great way to think about this is um, I'm about ready to, to get back into the, the heavy keynote speaking um, path. And 
it's something that once you've been out of it for a little bit, doesn't come naturally easy. And so I've been doing things uh, such as improv and Toastmasters and other things to try to put myself in uncomfortable situations. Well, having to go to an improv class where you know that you're going to put yourself into this foreign thing isn't easy. But if you motivate yourself to look at uh, what your long-term goal is, what you're trying to better, it gives you more of that excitement to go. And, and, and then when, once you're there, you see that everyone is having to act in an uncomfortable way for them. Some might be easier to do it, but um, to me, it just keeps on perpetuating the cycle that you take that step and then you want to take another one and then you'll, it'll impact another place in your life positively. And what is the biggest lesson that you've taken from writing this amazing book? So I start out the whole book with a quote by Henry David Thoreau, that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And to me, when I think about this, I just look at the studies that are coming out from Gallup that are showing 900 million people across the planet feel unfulfilled. I look at studies from Tom Gilovich at Cornell University who examined thousands of people and found out that their biggest regret is not pursuing 76% of them, not pursuing their ideal life. You can look at Bronnie Ware's work in palliative care, and it comes down to the same things. So to me, what I was really trying to write with this book is I'm laying out the framework for how do you create a life of significance? How do you go from who you actually are today and not fall into the trap of the ought life, the, the, the life you should do, but the ideal life that you could do? And so that's what I hope readers take away from this is that it's not just a book to be read, but it's a book to be lived. And I wanted it to be something that they come back to time and time again on their journey of life because the principles apply across anyone. No, and I think I think you've really accomplished that. I think it's an amazing book that you can have kind of by your bedside. And when you want to review some part of it, whether it's mentality or behavior or action, you can go there and and have an inspiration or find answers to where you feel stuck. I think you've really done an amazing job. And what has been the hardest thing writing this book? If someone wanted to write a book, what would you recommend? Well, I think the hardest thing is that the whole publishing world is just drastically changing. And so I would really think about, do you want to self-publish versus doing the traditional route like I did? Um, and what is your underlying goal that you're trying to achieve with the, with the book, because um, either way, no matter which path you take, ultimately the marketing and getting it out in the world is going to be on you either way. So I think that was a, a big learning for me. Um, and also um, I, I think it's, this book has gotten better through all the countless edits that I've done. And so uh, I think that first draft is great um, because it gives you something that that serves as a baseline, but it's going to evolve over time. And that's been part of the most rewarding aspect of the journey is as time has gone by, seeing what I've written and then adjusting it. I mean, if I could go back right now, I'd rewrite it again. Um, but <laughs> at, at some point, you got to put the thing down. 
Yeah. You, you need a deadline. Otherwise you're going to keep changing things and improving them. Yeah. And what is uh, one thing that you have, like you feel you've grown out of this book, like you have grown as a person? What is the one thing personally that has made you grow writing this book? I think it, it brings me back to a quote from Oprah Winfrey that I use in the book. Passion is energy. Feel the power that comes from focusing on what excites you. And to me, what I wrote about in the book is really my passion. It's to go out and to help people see that their lives truly matter, that your passion can fuel you to focus on what excites you, you to create the life that you've always dreamed of. And that's what I'm hoping this starts as a movement of people desiring to become their self-realized self. Now, I think what you've done, I think we know now each other for two years at least. And I've seen the amazing work that you've done uh, in the podcast, in your coaching, in sharing things, you know, and, and now writing the book. So I've seen your growth and it's really beautiful to see. It's amazing what you put out there. So it's really a privilege to see that and to and to be able to share this book. And I think it's going to really be um, amazing for people uh, because it, it is like a method, like you have all this structure that you can go back to and learn from and, and, and use it in your life. So I want to thank you for writing this book. I think it's amazing. <laughs> and, thank you, Christina. Uh, Yeah. And uh, I hope uh, we can meet again. We can meet back in Spain <laughs> here. <laughs> I know in the other in the other episode, uh, you share with us a little bit of your story coming to Spain. What it's going to be now uh, your next adventure after writing this amazing book? I, I definitely need 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 a break. I, I think the first thing on my mind is maybe going skiing, but uh, but definitely taking some time off, uh, getting a, a a breath of refreshment because marketing a book is is a long drag i can imagine and it's one of your steps renew you <laughs> need to renew <laughs> yeah. renovate pause thank you so much thank you so much for being here i hope um your book really gets out to as many people as possible and i'll make sure to share this as soon as possible christina thank you so much for having me it's always such an honor to get to talk to you and to to be with a kindred spirit so Thank you, and thank you to your audience as well. Thank you so much. 